Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this morning's message on Psalm 29. I'm Simon, and for those of you that don't know me, I'm a member of the church and a former elder. And if you're seeing this recording, it's because I'm at home um, feeling a little bit under the weather because I had my booster shot on Friday. Now, don't worry, I'm not having any major side effects. Uh, it's just that I thought it would send the wrong message to turn up to church, uh, showing apparently symptoms of a, of a cold or what could be COVID. Uh, Hillsong, take note. Anyway, sorry, that's enough controversy for one day. So we're going to talk about Psalm 29, and you've just heard that read, and I, I don't know who by, so I'm sorry about that. And also Romans 8, 18 to 28, and we'll come to that later. Um, but if you've got Psalm 29 open on your devices, or if you're old school like me and you use a book, then please turn the page to Psalm 29. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Now that, of course, is the opening line from a Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. And uh, although I'm not a great fan of Dickens, that is the best selling fiction book of all time. I think second, you know, obviously the Bible is top, but uh, this one is, is the top fiction book of all time. And in A Tale of Two Cities, Dickens deals with the shattering events of the French Revolution. This revolution challenged and overturned everything that France and the rest of Europe held dear. The hierarchy of society with the monarchy and the aristocracy at the top, the relationship of church and state, the ownership of private property and everybody's place in society. And everything was not merely challenged, but violently overturned, turned upside down, turned on its head. And then its head was cut off, quite literally. All the assumptions and sacred cows of the age were slaughtered. It was an artificial storm that terrified France's rulers and the neighbouring countries in Europe. It was known as the terror. Now, you might be asking, what's this got to do with a psalm about the weather? Well, we'll see. So scripture. Now, the primary emphasis of this psalm is the king, kingship and enthronement of God in verse 10. So Psalm 29, verse 10, the Lord rules over the deep waters. He rules as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people and blesses them with peace. That's verse 11. 
And this is demonstrated by the coming of life refreshing rainstorms on which the ancient Israelites depended. And what you see here in the slide is the typical path of Palestinian storms. And this is described in the psalm. So in verses three to four, we hear the voice of the Lord, the thunder upon the waters out at sea, which is reminiscent of the collecting storm clouds out in the Mediterranean Sea. The storm then moves inland to the Phoenician coastal region with great ferocity, causing the earth to rock and reel at its fury. And that's verses five to six. Well, the storm then moves southward where there is flashing lightning, shaking the wilderness of the desert. That's verses seven to eight and making the trees shake and tremble in verse nine. And the response to God's action in the storm in what's called the theophany, OK, technical word. So like a revelation. So God is revealing himself in the storm, revealing his power and glory. And the response to that, of course, is glory heard in the temple. So this is um, a temple worship psalm where the people respond to God's great power. And with the storm as the action of God, it is clear that the divine sits enthroned over the chaos and the floodwaters, and he is enthroned as king forever in verse 10. And then the psalm concludes in verse 11 with a petition that God will strengthen and bless people with peace, which seems an odd contrast, doesn't it? So the context of all of this is that this song was probably used in ancient Israelite worship as part of the autumn festival, which was both a New Year celebration. So Jewish New Year or Rosh Hashanah is uh, usually from early September to early October. And also the uh, festival is, is uh, an occasion anticipating the common and coming autumn rains. The first storms and rainfall of the autumn made possible the beginning of a new planting and growing season. And uh, of course, in South Australia, we have a very similar climate. Um, we, get, we tend to get very little rain in the summer. So we can understand just how important this first rain would be to the Israelites dwelling in or near the desert. And thus, Psalm 29 is the epiphany, it's the revelation of God and the action of God, his working in the world in terms of a storm. Now, some scholars have suggested that this psalm was borrowed by the Israelites from the Canaanites, who first used it in connection with the worship of their god, Baal, who was the Lord of the weather and the storm. And at the time that Psalm 29 was written or recorded, God's people had a very particular idea of how creation worked. So they believed that God used angels to directly control the weather and, and everything else on earth. So there were, there were four angels, one for each of the winds, east, north 
west and south. And uh, so that was the way that they thought natural phenomenon worked. Today, of course, we know that the weather is controlled by a lot of complex, what we would call natural uh, factors of the sun shining on the earth, causing temperature differences, and then the air circulates around our rotating planet, etc. Nevertheless, creation still works according to God's plan and God's natural laws. Every action has a consequence, just as God intended it to. He is in control of his creation, just not in the way that God's people thought all those years ago. So let's think about God's relationship with the natural world. First, let's remember what the psalmist intended. Okay, the first storms and rainfall of the autumn made possible the beginning of a new planting and growing season and life survival for God's people. The psalmist responds with praise to God on his throne. And we could point to this psalm as an indication of how reliable and dependable God is and how his natural provision for us is enough. Although I note the famous quote from Gandhi, there's enough on this planet for everyone's needs, but not for everyone's greed. So that's something for us in the West to remember. And so what's our relationship with the natural world? Well, over the last couple of years, we've been reminded that we are not the apex predator on this planet. I remember years ago, somebody saying that the two dominant life forms on this planet were humans and viruses. And they weren't wrong, were they? I had a little taste of this revelation back in the mid-1990s. I went uh, to the middle of Alaska, and there I found a true wilderness, really wild country with lots of wild animals. Most impressive were the grizzly bears. They had, as you can maybe can see on the picture, they had claws the size of my fingers, and you could hear their claws scraping on the tarmac as they walked across the road, uh, even from a safe distance, I hasten to point out. And what struck me was I saw one of the bears lift up its head, sniff the air, and then turn to look upwind at me. The bear had smelled my scent and realised there was a sizable piece of meat just over there, cowering in a van, I should say. Fortunately, it wasn't hungry. It preferred salmon, I'm glad to say. And so I was reminded that I was not at the top of the food chain, at least not in Alaska. Uh, this is a lesson, as you can imagine, I haven't forgotten. Our reaction to nature over the last two years has been a revelation, hasn't it? It's been a revelation as we humans come up against our limitations. For most of us, we have come up against an enemy that we cannot see, do not understand, and cannot resist. And this fills us with dread, quite naturally. We no longer behave rationally, sensibly, 
or sometimes very nicely. The veneer of civilization and civilized behavior has worn a bit thin, hasn't it? But what we should remember, of course, is that COVID is fortunately uh, a relatively low lethality virus. The official figures from Australian Bureau of Statistics tell us that COVID-19 kills 2.7% of those that it infects, okay? But there have been other viruses quite recently. Um, there was um, SARS in 2004 and MERS and other ones. And some of these other viruses have been far more lethal, okay? Um, and we would do well to reflect on that and give thanks that COVID isn't as potent as some of these other things that have been um, restrained. And of course, we should give thanks that we have vaccines. And so as Christians, what should our reaction be to these earth shattering events, this demonstration of nature's power and our powerlessness to resist it? Well, the first mistake we can make is to be smug or complacent Christians. Um, we might sit there and go, well, nothing bad will ever happen to us because we belong to God. And that's not true. You know, God said to Noah back in Genesis chapter nine, I'm going to make a solemn promise to you and to everyone who will live after you. I promise every living creature that the earth and those living on it will never again be destroyed by a flood. OK, we didn't say anything about any other natural disasters. And of course, bad things, catastrophic things continue to happen to God's people after that. Israel and Judah split. Uh, both were invaded and destroyed by foreign pagan powers, and only a remnant of God's people was restored. Um, the Greeks invaded and triggered a civil war, that's the Maccabees, um, between the Testaments. Um, the Romans invaded and they destroyed Jerusalem twice. And the Jewish temple was destroyed several times and no longer exists really as a physical object. And then much later after that, when the bubonic plague came to Christian Europe in the Middle Ages, half, half the population died. So to think that nothing really bad will ever happen to Christendom, to God's people, is foolish because it's not borne out by history. And we should remember that our Western democratic society will not survive forever. Lots of advanced civilizations have fallen in the past, and there's no reason to think that ours is gonna last forever, okay? We're here to worship God, uh, not to worship our civilization or our strength. Um, we give thanks that our civilization has brought so many good things to us, and we should be grateful for that, but it's not a substitute for God. The other mistake that we could make is buying into secret knowledge or conspiracy theories. Um, years ago, we had uh, a guy come to our house who was um, measuring up for some fir fitted furniture. And while he was in earshot, I mentioned something to Liz 
about the Da Vinci Code, the book by Dan Brown. And this guy heard this and he began to tell me all about this book he'd read where somebody had found secret messages hidden in the Old Testament. And he was very animated about this. So I explained to the guy that it's very easy to find hidden messages in the Old Testament for several reasons. First of all, um, it's written without any punctuation or verse numbers, as you can see here. They were all added later. Uh, and Hebrew has very few words. So the words that the language does have have to serve multiple meanings and you work out which meaning is appropriate from the context. So, for example, uh, ruach, the Hebrew word, means spirit, uh, as in Holy Spirit, or breath or wind, you know, as in the weather. So it can mean all of those things. And also, there are no articles in Hebrew. And by that, I mean, there's no thes and there's no uh or ands. OK, uh, Hebrew just doesn't have articles. Um, it's like Japanese in that respect. Maybe other Asian languages. I don't know. And the way that the Hebrew characters are written on the scrolls, as you can see in the slide, there are lots of individual characters um, set out uh, in a grid like pattern. So it's very easy if you like, you know, you can think of doing a word search. You could draw a vertical line and look at the characters, you know, down or up or in a diagonal or, you know, across or the wrong way round, etc. And it's very easy, you know, in, in a million verses in the Bible, uh, you're going to two thirds of which I think are in the Old Testament. You're going to find a lot of, you know, by by um, randomly, you're going to find a lot of funny sentences that, that can can be made to make some kind of sense. That's just going to happen. And of course, the message that you derive by doing that has got nothing to do with the original writer's intent, what they were trying to say, which is why I emphasize that for this psalm. Now, what was really interesting was as soon as I said this to the guy, his eyes glazed over. He just didn't want to know. Um, I think he wanted the conspiracy. He wanted the secret knowledge. He didn't want the facts. The truth was complex and nowhere near as exciting as the fiction. And of course, this is a very old heresy. This is the heresy of Gnosticism, okay, where people or some people thought that salvation came from secret knowledge, not from a relationship with God. And it's so old um, that uh, St. John uh, writes in his letters against it or against an early form of Gnosticism in the Bible. So it's at least a couple of thousand years old. And today we see that there are a small but significant number of people who think that they know better than the professionals. Um, I'm mindful that in church we are knee deep in medics. We've got more doctors per square meter than a hospital, I think, haven't we? Um, and these people think that they know better than the medics. Um, they think they know how to avoid COVID without masks or vaccinations or to treat COVID with wacky quack medicines that in reality don't work. And some even suggest that COVID isn't a problem or doesn't exist. Um, sadly, some of these people are Christians 
and they are bringing our faith into disrepute. They are making Jesus look stupid um, and lacking in love and compassion, lacking in, you know, consideration for other people, which, of course, is is the opposite of Jesus's teaching, isn't it? So we need to be very careful and avoid those kind of mistakes and those pitfalls. So in conclusion, I wanted to say that for a long time, we have assumed that the riches of nature rough were there for us to use, to enjoy and exploit. But we've been reminded that sometimes there are consequences of doing this that we may not like. And in the last two years, we've seen our relationship with the natural world really turned on its head. And we have been reminded that we are not in sole charge of this planet. We are not all powerful and we are not God. The next virus, of course, may not be as mild as COVID, but life will go on. The planet will readjust and gain a new balance. All will be well. Western civilization might collapse, but a faithful remnant of Christian humanity will survive. In good times or bad, we can rely on God's orderly creation to behave predictably. We will continue to have freedom of choice that God has given us. But we have to remember that every human action and decision has consequences. And of course, as so often happens, if we want some really good guidance, we just need to read the letters in the New Testament. And in these verses in Romans chapter 28, Paul reminds God's people that our present sufferings do not compare to the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul looks at a creation that is clearly frustrated and subject to decay and death and disease and other terrible things. And of course, in those days, um, daily life would have been far more horrible than it is today, even without some plague appearing. And yet Paul considers this to be merely a process that is going to lead to great things for the children of God. This is a terrific statement of faith. As he looks forward to a time when everything will be different and so much better. And he reminds us of hope, the hope we had when saved, the hope we for those Christians who were at the bottom of society and had no other hope. He reminds us that we wait patiently for what we do not yet have, liberation from this world of death and decay. And finally, in verse 28, we were reminded of love. We were reminded that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Or does it say that we know all things work together for good to those who love God? Or does it say that all works together for those who love him to bring about good goodness? Now, different manuscripts translate this verse slightly different, but it doesn't matter. All three can be true. All three are true. And so I wish you faith, hope and love. I pray that I will be more faithful, hopeful and loving. And I pray that for you too. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. 
We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.